The epistle reading today is from Hebrews chapter 11, picking up where we left off with verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord God, I pray that you use me as an instrument of your grace and that the words that I speak this morning may be tools in your hands to do with as you please. In your name I pray. Amen. Morning, grace and peace. Some of you know that my day job is as an English professor over at WashU, and a few of you know that uh, my research these days has taken me to uh, Anne Bradstreet, who was a, a Puritan poet in the 1600s, first poet from America to publish a book of poems. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to give you a lecture on Anne Bradstreet this morning. I'm not even going to read you any of her poems. Um, but I do want to read a little bit from, from the end of her spiritual autobiography that she left to her children. And this is what she wrote. Near the end of her life, she was sick. Uh, she didn't know what was going to happen, if she was going to survive it, and she left this testimonial with her children. And at the end of that testimonial, after she talked about all that had troubled her mind and all that had given her doubts through her life and all that she had come to believe, in the end, she simply casts herself on Christ. And this is what she writes. I can now say, return, O my soul, to thy rest. Upon this rock, Christ Jesus, will I build my faith. And if I perish, I perish. That last line there, if I perish, I perish, as we just heard this morning, that's not actually her line. Or, or rather, it is her line. She makes it her line. She tells her story with this story of Scripture. But that line comes from Esther. We read it this morning. In Bradstreet's moment of trial, she turns to a hero of the faith. She turns to Scripture. She turns to a woman who could serve as a model for her. And she joins herself to that ongoing community of the faithful. That's what we're really talking about here at the end of Hebrews 11. The same thing is happening here in Hebrews 11. All these stories we hear throughout this whole chapter is not just a history lesson. 
This is a reminder that's spoken to a living community of the faithful. It's spoken to us. All of these stories and our stories together, they come together to form one continuous line. What is that line pointing to? It's worth taking a quick detour into that story of Esther because it actually points us to an important dimension in our passage today. Esther was this queen. She was positioned at just the right time to save her people, her fellow Jews, from a plot that was aimed at their annihilation. And to save them, she had to make a request to the king. But to make a request of the king, uninvited, would be to invite death. That was the risk. That was the danger. And it was a risk and it was a danger that Esther felt compelled to take. Obedience to God and a love for God's people required it. So she told everyone to fast, and she fasted and she prayed herself. And then she said, when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. In Esther's case, she does not perish. She wins, she thwarts the plot, but she doesn't know that that's gonna happen. She just knows what she needs to do. That's what this roll call of heroes in Hebrews 11 is giving us as well. One after another, the people of faith recorded in this chapter are people who obey. They do what God calls them to do, and they do not know the outcome in advance. At first, in verses 32 to 35, in the passage that we read this morning, the outcomes seem pretty extraordinary. Faith conquers kingdoms, it enforces justice, it obtains promises, it stops the mouths of lions, it quenches the power of fire, it escapes the edge of the sword. I mean, this is a faith that everybody would want, right? This is a very powerful faith. But just as we come to a high point, right there in the middle of, he uh, of, of verse 35, Hebrews turns on a dime. At the beginning of that verse 35, faith is so powerful that the very dead are brought back to life. And by the end of that same verse, the faithful have been tortured to death. So which is it? Are we getting a triumph here? Or are we getting a trial? Is this faith something that we actually really want in the end? One straightforward lesson from Hebrews 11 is that asking what we want in the end is the wrong sort of question to be asking. If God is real, the question is not about what we want. The only question is, how do I obey? To explain that a bit, I want to borrow a wonderful phrase, the politics of long joy. And just so we're clear, I'm borrowing this phrase from a Christian literary critic named Alan Jacobs, who's using it to talk about another critic named Stanley Fish, who's using it to talk about John Milton, who was a writer in the 1600s. All of that is neither here nor there. I just want to give credit where credit is due. It's not my phrase. I'm borrowing this. Here's how it works. Milton, in the 1600s, middle of 1600s, he wrote a defense of the freedom of the press called Areopagitica. And he knew, given his day and his age, that his argument would fail. It wasn't going to work. It wasn't going to change any minds. But Milton wrote it anyway. He wrote the treatise anyway. And in doing so, in the middle of that treatise, he claimed that his argument will be a certain testimony, if not a trophy. In other words, it would witness to what he knew was right, even though he knew he would fail. That same spirit, as Alan Jacobs points out, animates all of Milton's Paradise Lost, his great epic about the fall. The angels, the good angels, who obey God in that story, they do so without knowing the outcome of their obedience in advance. All they know is that obedience is required. They act for a testimony, not a trophy. That is the politics of long joy. It is a life lived in faithful obedience to God, 
regardless of where that faithful obedience takes you. It might take you high. You might rise to success and receive honors and glories and even wealth in this world. It might. It might not. You might find yourself with those at the end of this passage in Hebrews, wandering in poverty, afflicted, destitute, and mistreated. The writer of the Hebrews does not distinguish the one from the other. The worldly outcome of faith is not the measure of its worth. The faithful are attested not by their bank accounts. The faithful are attested by God. Today I want to talk a little bit about this politics of long joy and stress a few things that Hebrews 11 would have us keep in mind. The first is God's reality, that we live in the light of a reality that extends beyond this world. The second is God's story. That reality, that reality that extends beyond this world, it is a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And by the promises of God, we've been given the end. We know where this story is headed. And the third thing is that living in the light of this truth, this story, is the main way we actually come to know and experience it as true. So first then, we believe in more than we can see. That's how Hebrews 11 begins. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. There are forces and powers and mysteries beyond the grasp of the five senses. The story of the transfiguration that we read this morning is another story testifying to that fact. Now look, this is not necessarily easy to accept, and I don't want to pretend that it is. Take the case of a funeral, which many of us have been at. What is said as a Christian funeral is pretty incredible when you think about it. The body of someone that we have loved lies right there, right before us. But we say that the person is not there, or not fully. We believe in more than we can see. I once stood on the edge of a hole in a cemetery in Iowa where they lowered the body of my grandmother into the ground. I saw it happen. I could take you there now. And still I can stand here today and say this rather incredible thing. She lives. How do we say such things? Is this faith a kind of madness? This God of our faith is a God who has power over death. And yet, the faithful still die. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says that many of them die for the very faith that they profess. Why do they do so? Because they have to believe that death is not the end. They live toward a different end. That brings me to the second point. This reality that shapes our world and shapes our faith, it is a story which aims at a different end. And it's because of that larger story that we get so many stories packed together here in Hebrews 11. We hear about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarai, about Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and Rahab. And by the time we come to the end, it's all just a little too much for the writer of Hebrews. So he starts to summarize, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. We are walking through the hall of heroes in Hebrews 11. But the important point is that they're all part of one story. They're all living in the light of an end that they knew and believed and knew as well that they would never see. Two things I'd quickly say about this roll call of heroes. The first is that for anyone who's actually read their stories, they know that these heroes are not always so very heroic. Each of them is marked by failure and serious flaw and deep sin 
and some of them are marked by doubts and angers and questionings of God. If these are the heroes of faith, it shows you just how far short the faithful can fall. We don't have to be perfect to enter this tale. The second thing is that we can enter this tale. It doesn't take fame to stand beside these in faith. Our lives, like their lives, are shaped by the stories that we tell about ourselves. And those stories, like their stories, are shaped by the arc of a grand redemption narrative, a beginning in the word of God, a middle muddling through of our own lives of faith and doubt and obedience and disobedience, and an end, a sense of a paradise to come, not just personally, not just for me, but of a coming kingdom, a righteousness, a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. In that holy city, Revelation tells us, God himself will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things will pass away. Living in obedience for the vision of that end, that is the politics of long joy. Do you believe that story? Seriously. <laughs> or is this not quite a believable story? Does all this talk of a final victory seem like a consolation prize, covering up the brute facts of life and death? It's the right question to ask, because if we make this grand story our story, it cannot but change the way we live. The worldly order of things, with all of its prizes and all of its trophies, becomes a little second-rate in the grand scheme of things. Certainly nothing we'd trade our lives for, nothing we'd give our souls for. As the great hymn by Isaac Watts put it, that we just sang this morning, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You see, as the world goes, the Apostle Paul had a fine life as Saul. There was no reason for him to change it. In many ways, his worldly life became far worse after his conversion, and yet he stuck with it. A vision of Christ compelled him. He gave up whatever power he had, and he became a wanderer, a nomad, trying to speak the truth of what he had come to see wherever he happened to be, and in the end, he died in chains. But this vision he had of Christ, this death and resurrection, a future where death is no more, can it be true? Today we ask that question in an era that offers us a thousand little comforts, but looks suspiciously at happy endings. Distractions are offered in the understanding that the reality of this world, the true nature of things, is whatever we find most difficult to take. The rest is wishful thinking. This is not an idle point of view. It is in many ways the long bias of our age. According to the philosopher Charles Taylor, it actually arises rather prominently in the late 1800s when a series of stories began claiming in the wake of Darwin that continued faith in God was childish at best and obstinate at worst. 
Maturity, or manhood, as it was often framed, required the courage to accept the brute and brutal facts of the world. Death is the end. God does not exist. There is no grander purpose or meaning to your life. The world is a survival of the fittest in a place of happenstance and luck. It's hard to take, but a brave man accepts the facts. These were the stories that were being told. There's a little poem, five lines long, by Stephen Crane that summarizes this point of view. He says, A man said to the universe, Sir, I exist. However, the universe replied, the fact has, created, has not created in me a sense of obligation. These stories crying out, I exist, I have meaning, I have purpose, right? Uh, and all of these stories from the late 1800s say, there is no meaning, there is no purpose, there is no story, there is no God. The after effects of these narratives are enormous. And they can be seen, in my opinion, this is not a studied opinion, okay? So this is just my opinion in the praise that's lavished on the bleakest novels and movies as the ones that are most profound and most true to life. Happy endings are for kids. Stories with no redemption in them, that's the meat that we feed to adults. I don't want to downplay such movies and novels and stories. The world is, after all, a very bleak place for a whole lot of people. The hardness of life has to be acknowledged, and the writer of Hebrews does acknowledge it grimly and even graphically. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The final imagery of Hebrews 11 does not sugarcoat things. The world is a hard place, whether you have faith or not. And yet, we have this biblical tale that arcs toward an unquestionably happy ending. A grand story culminating in a coming city where God will wipe every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. Do you believe that? At a time in my life in college, when I had a hard time believing that or anything else really, a professor gave me some books by Frederick Beekner. Now Beekner is a writer who's questioned almost everything, almost all of his life, often quite eloquently, but he also believes. And looking back at his life after his own conversion, Beekner acknowledged the reality of doubts. Which of us can look at our own religion or lack of it without seeing in it the elements of wish fulfillment, he said. Which of us can look back at our own lives without seeing in them the role of blind chance and dumb luck? That summed up pretty well the position I had come to take at that point. And this is how Beekner went on. But faith, says the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen, and looking back at those distant years, I choose not to deny either the compelling sense of an unseen giver and a series of hidden gifts as not only another part of their reality, but the deepest part of all. Beekner was a gift to me then and many times since. It was those lines at that moment more than anything else which drew me back to faith because I had experienced that compelling sense as well, the sense of a reality that is far bigger than this world. And the more I had faith in that the reality, the more the stories of the faithful made sense. These stories, these lies, were lived out in the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And in the process, they became the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Their lives added to the compelling sense that a different, larger story is true. Why does Paul give up so much to preach the gospel? Why do Peter and the other disciples go to jail and die for the message they hope to deliver? 
Why does someone like Martin Luther King Jr. stand up and preach against hatred and wrong to his very death? Why does a man like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German man who could have had a perfectly fine German life, not just accept his good fortune, but instead go to death in faithful obedience and opposition to the evil that he saw around him? These witnesses witness to something. Their own conviction becomes a kind of evidence. The stories that come together through Hebrews 11 are not just a history lesson. They're not just a list of examples to emulate. They are the very evidence of the point. And that brings me to the, my third point, this question of evidence. Living in the light of God's truth, living out God's story in faithful obedience is the main way we actually come to know and experience it as true. Now, some of you might think that sounds a little suspicious. After all, just believing in something and living as though it were true cannot actually serve as evidence that it is true. And that's right, in a basic sort of way, but, but here's the thing. We don't really have a choice about it. No one is without faith. People might have faith in God, or they might have faith that there is no God, but either way, it's faith. In both cases, evidence will support that faith. People can marshal out the evidence for why they do or do not believe in God. It's precisely what Anne Bradstreet does in her autobiography. Over the course of several pages, she gives all the reasoning and all the evidence for what she believes. And that matters. Evidence matters. Faith, in the end, has to be rational. It has to make sense to the believer, or it isn't faith at all. What we don't get to do, what no one gets to do, is step back and examine all the evidence one way or the other as a neutral third-person observer, weighing things in the balance and finally casting our lot. We're cast from the get-go. Our upbringings, our cultures, our experiences, we're thrown into the pool before we know how to swim. It's only by swimming that we learn how to swim, and it's only by believing that we learn what we believe and what to believe. This is true whether you believe in God or not. Conversions one way or the other are always a conversion of one faith to another, as people search for a framework, a true story of reality, something that makes sense of their experiences and all they know and all that otherwise doesn't make sense. The story shaping Hebrews 11, and really all of Hebrews, is the story of Christ. According to the writer of Hebrews, Christ is what makes it all make sense. The models and exemplars of Hebrews 11 lived as they did because they were looking forward to Christ as the perfecter and fulfillment of their faith. But what does Christ change? The writer of Hebrews is at pains to say over many chapters that Christ changes everything. All the Old Testament prophets and heroes and normal everyday people of God are brought now into God's presence through Christ. And today, now in the present, we can draw near to God in and through Christ Jesus our Lord, knowing he stands in our place. The final sacrifice has already been made. That is the message of Hebrews again and again and again. Christ changes everything. Look, it's like this. If Christ has not been raised, as Paul says, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If the death and resurrection are a hoax, you should get up and walk out of here. Save yourself some time this Sunday morning, because the minutes you spend here, however small it may seem, are still a sacrifice then made for a story that's not true. And that's just you, and that's just an hour or two on a Sunday morning. What about all those who gave up their goods, gave up their honors, gave up their very lives? If Christ has not been raised from the dead, and our, our first goal should be to figure out the world's game and play it well. 
But if Christ has been raised from the dead, then our goal is one and the same with all these people listed in Hebrews 11, faithful obedience. The politics of long joy does not accept the rules of this world's game. We are living a different story, or at least we should be. Too often we aren't. Listen to the priest and writer Henry Nouwen as he reflects on this discrepancy. That issue here is the question, to whom do I belong, Nouwen writes, to God or to the world? Many of my daily preoccupations suggest that I belong more to the world than to God. A little criticism makes me angry and a little rejection makes me depressed. A little praise raises my spirits and a little success excites me. It takes very little to raise me up or thrust me down. He says, my life is mostly an anxious struggle for survival. Not a holy struggle, but an anxious struggle resulting from the mistaken idea that it is the world that defines me. I don't know about you, but I know exactly what Nouwen means. I proclaim that Christ is crucified, died, and risen, but I also implicitly, if not explicitly, hedge my bets. I live the game of the world even as I proclaim myself dedicated to a different story. But there really isn't a middle ground. If Christ conquered death, then death is not the end. What does it say of the saints who wandered in poverty and faced the sword at the end of Hebrews 11? The world was not worthy of them. Now, I've talked a good deal today about these competing stories, a story of the world and the story of an unseen giver who stands behind it all. But I need to make something clear. Living into the story of Christ does not mean leaving this world behind. All the examples of faith we have in Hebrews 11 are about people deeply engaged in this world, taking action, moving and building and intervening in worldly affairs. Moses left his palace perch, took up farming and flocks, met God in a burning bush, rolled up his robe sleeves, and went back into the fray to lead God's people out of slavery. Throughout Hebrews 11, we're talking about action in this world in response to a reality that extends beyond it. We're talking about people who give to this world and witness to a better way, whether this world honors them or ousts them as a result. And such people are everywhere. It's not just the famous. It's not just the Hall of Heroes. Hebrews includes the unknown saints as well. Some of you might be thinking, you know, it's one thing to be Moses or Abraham, uh, but what about me? I'm not MLK. I'm not Bonhoeffer. They're not building a statue of me in the park. But the end of Hebrews 11 is precisely about that. When we come to the close, the writer stops naming names and starts sketching the sense of an inexhaustible, innumerable host of the faithful spread through all the ages and extending to the present day. And the very nature of faithful obedience means that most of the faithful are and will be utterly unknown and unremembered in this world, precisely because their glory is not the glory of this world. Recently, Bruce Smith gave me a book uh, by a wonderful, curmudgeonly old French Catholic writer named Charles Pegui. And Pegui puts this beautifully. This is how he puts it. There is a sort of intimacy proper, he writes, between sanctity and a humble life, a particular fitness proper to it, a taste of grace for the secret virtue, a close association of God with humility, a close association of Jesus with the poor and the wretched and the humble and the obscure and the non-public with those who have wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. Faithful obedience to God is often local. It's often small. It means faith, living faithfully in whatever way we can to serve here and now where we are. 
We know for a certain that a very great number of saints have had no public life and that the glory in heaven is the first they have ever attained. We don't look to this world for glory. We look to God. It's God who holds the faithful. It's God who attests to their witness. It's God who never lets them go, no matter what the world brings. As that old hymn puts it, the soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. When we come to the end of Hebrews, the writer wants to make it clear that these words still ring true even for those who face persecution, misery, trial, and death. What looks like weakness is strength. These saints lived a different politics. They lived the politics of long joy. So I'll close then with a very simple, very quick application. First, what story do you believe? What story shapes the life you live? What sacrifices do you make? What actions do you take? What ways do you move through your days in such a way that the story you hold to be true actually holds you and shapes you as a result? Second, those who know you, your friends, your family, your colleagues and coworkers, your acquaintances here and there, what story would they say shapes your life? What end would they say that you live for and strive for? Because often there'll be a mismatch between the story that we say we believe and the story that we actually live. This is what Nowen was talking about. That mismatch is a place to examine ourselves. How often are you living in the hope of this world's gain, or this world's honor, or this world's sense of worth? And finally, a simple, straightforward statement given to us by the preacher of Hebrews. If you hold that the death and resurrection of Christ is true, if you think there's a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God, if you count yourself a citizen of that kingdom, then hold fast. We are not living for a trophy. We are living for a testimony to that truth, come whatever comes. Anne Bradstreet knew that truth. She lived a long life of faith, and the more she lived that faith, the more she came to know the God that she professed so that the full ending of her autobiography is a return to that rest. This is what she writes in full. And now I can say, she writes, return, O my soul, to thy rest. Upon this rock, Christ Jesus, will I build my faith. And if I perish, I perish. But I know all the powers of hell shall never prevail against it. I know whom I have trusted and whom I have believed, and that he is able to keep what I have committed to his charge. Now to the king, immortal, eternal, and invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.